If Washington wants to get right with voters, it has to start listening to them. Welcome to Beyond the Bubble. I'm Alex Rorty, a national political correspondent for McClatchy. And I'm Andrea Dresch, Washington correspondent for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. This week, we're back with PolitiFact, the fact-checking group that makes it easy for you to follow what's true and what's pants-on-fire false. We're going to break down some of May's biggest whoppers. I know what you're thinking. The bar is high. (laughs) It's an awfully high bar these days, Andrea. Tell us who's going to help us out. The one and only Lou Jacobson, senior correspondent for the Pulitzer Prize-winning fact-check website PolitiFact formerly a writer for the Tampa Bay Times and the National Journal Magazine, RIP. You do. <laughs> it's a great, it's a great hype woman impersonation, Andrea. You ready to do this thing? Let's do it. January 20th, the day the people became the rulers of this nation again. And our ideals and fundamental values are being attacked. Do we retreat or do we fight? I say we fight. He heard those voices that were out there that other people weren't hearing, and he just earned a mandate. It is time for Democrats to grow a backbone and get out there and fight. The American people would like to try something new. We would like to see the country go in a different direction to change the course for America. He doesn't take this presidency seriously enough. So to all Americans, hear these words. You will never be ignored again. So we want to have Lou on as we do every month, because even on this show, as you see sometimes in the media, there is so much back and forth about the politics at something, how something looks, how it's playing with the electorate, that occasionally you can lose track of what's actually true or what's not true. And hey, that's a core responsibility of journalism, too. And that's why we want to bring Lou on to actually talk about some of the things that were said in the last month that, believe it or not, were not true. And shed a little light on just how hard it is to track that down sometimes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show, as always. We trust you had a good Memorial Day weekend. Yes, I did. Thank you. You guys, too? Yeah, it was pretty good. Yeah. Good. Got plenty of sleep. Yeah, great. So, Lou, since we had PolitiFact last year in studio, you guys picked up some big friends and some big enemies. Uh, (laughs) This month, Texas Senator Ted Cruz on Twitter called PolitiFact a a liberal parody site. You also picked up maybe an unlikely friend in Elon Musk from Tesla. Yeah, so um, he had a pretty widely watched Twitter screed a couple days ago um, when he was complaining about the media. And in one of his tweets... He's not especially pro-journalism in that moment, (laughs) at least. It didn't seem that way. No, it didn't. No, it didn't seem that way. And um, at uh, one point, he tweeted something to the effect of, you know, I I wish there were some sort of accountability site that can rate things as being accurate or not. And it sort of caught our eyes like, well, that's kind of what we do. So... Yeah, here we've got the tweet. He said that he might consider creating a site where the public can rate the core truth of any article and track the credibility score over time of each journalist, editor, and publication. Right. And uh, that's, that's of course, not exactly what we do. We, we don't rate the media, per se. We rate, certainly, politicians and uh, pundit commentator folks. You don't also don't rate things based on a public opinion poll, but we, we, we don't have to focus on that. Correct. Yes. No, we use our you know professional skills as journalists to do that. But it looks like the, the Twitterverse pointed him toward PolitiFact anyway. And Elon said, you do great work. Right. So we started seeing all, all these replies in our mentions column uh, on Twitter is like, you know, something like this already exists. It's called PolitiFact. And so we decided, uh, hey, you know, why don't we tweet at him and say, hey, here's what we do, et cetera, et cetera check us out. And he responded with a tweet that basically said, oh, yes, I I know about you guys. I I like what you do. And then eventually 
he uh, decided to become a member, and he meant member of the public can by don- donating a modest amount of money as a membership Will you fee. tell us how much? Um, and I, I don't know how much it is. Uh, it's certainly not in the billions, though. But uh, he did become a member. Does he have a point? Do we need a politifact of the media? I know you already do a pundit fact. Uh, you know, I think reasonable people can disagree over that. It's not something that we do. Part of the complication of what we do is that we check things and it's not done on a randomly sampled basis. So doing comparisons of like how truthful somebody is compared to somebody else or how truthful one party is compared to the other, it's not really valid scientifically because we choose items to check based on how interesting they are. Things are are just obvious. You know, you have to check them because everybody's talking about them. Um, and so it's not a random sample that's scientifically valid. So that's that's something I think we would stay away from. We care more about if you hear something or see something on the internet or on TV and you're wondering, huh, is that true? We want to answer that question, is that true? And we're not not as much into the comparison game. Um, so our, our first whopper of the week comes from Donald Trump in a tweet. This is a, a bit of a game of telephone here, but Trump said in a tweet that James Clapper said that the FBI was, quote, spying on his campaign. Yeah, so just as a quick reminder uh, for our listeners, we have a six-point rating scale. The best is true, and then mostly true, half true, mostly false, false, and the worst is pants on fire. So on this claim from the president about James Clapper, we gave that a false. Uh, You know, it gets a little complicated because Trump uses the word spying to mean different things than actual spies do. So to a certain extent, they're kind of talking past each other. But we did give this a false, basically because Clapper was trying to be very clear in what he was saying. He was not saying that the FBI spied on Trump's campaign. What they're trying to do is to do counterintelligence to make sure that the Russians weren't actually doing anything bad to the country via Trump's campaign. Um, They were trying to protect Trump's campaign. Um, Clapper told Anderson Cooper, quote, the objective here was actually to protect the campaign by, by determining whether the Russians were infiltrating it and attempting to exert influence. So basically, Clapper was very clear in his statements. And then after Trump um, accused him of backing him up on this spying charge, uh, Clapper also came out and said, no, he is twisting my words. Well, I mean, Lou, and this has been something of an ongoing controversy, I feel like, among Democrats and Republicans, what exactly constitutes spying and, and yes. whether this constitutes spying. So uh, Clapper's words aside, I mean, has, has PolitiFact looked into that? I and mean, that, that's not an easy question to answer. It is not an easy question. And um, I believe that we have done something on um, the definition of what, what is and is not spying. And there's no single overarching definition that's like accepted by everybody and in all contexts. I would definitely agree that it's a complicated question what the terminology means, spying versus uh versus infiltrating, versus doing a counterintelligence operation. People can probably disagree on what the proper term is, but I think what what was different in this case is that Clapper was very clear on what he was saying, and he was not buying into what President Trump's definition of the word spying was. And the president tried to say that Clapper was buying into it, and that was not the case. Right. Well, you know, if nothing else, Lou, it gives you a chance to brush up on your Tom Clancy novels. Yes. <laughs> Let's move on to something else the president said uh, this time about the Iranian deal. He, you know, he had this to say 
about uh, Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer in a tweet, quote, Senator Cryan Chuck Schumer fought hard against the bad Iran deal, even going at it with President Obama, and then voted against it. I would note that against was in all caps. Um, you know, Lou, on this show, and I feel like with a lot of fact checks, we go through it and it's determined that what the president said was false, but maybe not in this case. De- no, definitely not. He was uh, he was 100% correct here. We gave him a, a full true rating, not, not even a mostly true. Basically, uh, Schumer has what we could have done. We didn't, but it would probably qualify for a full flop, which is our flipometer. We uh, sometimes check politicians on whether they've changed their positions. And so we haven't officially done that, but it would probably be a pretty good candidate for that. Schumer in um, 2015, when the when when the Iran nuclear deal was being debated, he uh, spoke out against it. He voted against it in 2015. What has changed is that now it's in place. It's been in place for a couple of years. Schumer said that it seemed to be working reasonably well and that it was not wise for us to exit it, as the president did. So he had a comment um, when somebody asked him about this obvious flip-flop. They asked him if he had any regrets. And he said, quote, I don't think the deal was a good deal. Proud I voted no. But at this time and this place, for so many reasons, pulling out precipitously without our allies involved does not achieve any of the goals we need to achieve and hurts Americans in different ways. So basically, you can see where he's kind of going with this. He's saying that times have changed. The situation has changed. So my view has changed. The president is certainly within his rights and is accurate to say that Schumer has flip flopped on this issue. I remember when he came out initially against the deal and the White House was just furious uh, with with Chuck Schubert and that spilled out into public view and then some uh, at the time. Exactly. All right. This is one of my favorite things that PolitiFact does and and we're early in the campaign season, but fact checking campaign ads. This one's from the Democratic group, the Senate Majority PAC, um, an ad that they're running for Florida Senator Bill Nelson that says, quote, he served his His country country as as an an army army captain captain. and astronaut on the shuttle Columbia. And as one of America's most independent senators, Bill Nelson. Go for it. We said half true. And it's a little fuzzy for us to fact check, but we found a way to do it. So the most obvious way to look at this question is to look at their voting record. And if you look at it, Nelson has only, um, I believe, seven other Democratic candidates have broken with their party as often as Bill Nelson has which means that he's somewhat more centrist, somewhat more moderate than a lot of his peers. On the other hand, it's even squishier to look at the question of, you know, has he worked on, on like bipartisan measures more? Has he worked with the White House of an opposing party more? That is a little bit less certain. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just that there's not a lot of data that we could find to either support or debunk that. It's also worth pointing out that during his career, he had started out as even more independent, if you want to use that word. His vote ratings uh, in terms of breaking with his party were even more common earlier in his career. But that's not necessarily a Bill Nelson phenomenon so much as it is a Congress phenomenon. I was, I mean, I was going to say, and Lou, you have, you have some history with National Journal like I do, and we used yeah. to do these vote ratings every year where it would, it would try to assess that, actually, who was the yeah. most independent senator, and they would do it, or who would vote for the other party the most. You would see it over the course of time, and by the time I got there this decade, where you would effectively, every Democratic lawmaker 
was more liberal than every Republican lawmaker and vice versa, which didn't used to be the case at all. Exactly. There used to be a lot more crossover between the two parties. You, you would have very moderate Republicans, very conservative Democrats kind of like crossing over in those two sort of uh, graphs you could put together of the whole spectrum. And if Bill Nelson is the eighth most independent member now in 2018, 10 years ago, 15 years ago, he might have been the eighth, but his vote rating with his party would have been a lot lower. And the whole party composition of both parties have have, uh, changed in a way that makes it much, much more partisan. For the the listeners who pay close attention to politics, uh, they would know that he is one of the most vulnerable Democratic senators running for re-election this year in Florida against the incumbent Republican governor, Rick Scott, who, of course, is well known in the state and has a lot of money. We'll we'll, we'll leave it at that. Um, And And has now served for eight years as governor, has a record of achievements he can run on. It's a swing state which has really tended Republican, if anything, over the past couple of election cycles. So Nelson certainly has incumbency, but he's going to get a really stiff challenge from uh, Governor Scott. Right, right. And him trying to establish this independence is pretty critical to his his reelection. Certainly something to watch there. You know, Lou, we want to move on now to something that Oliver North, uh, the newly named president of the NRA, something he said on Sunday, May 20th, in the wake of the uh, deadly school shootings in Santa Fe. If you look at what has happened to the young people, many of these young boys have been on Ritalin since they were in kindergarten. He is, of course, referring to a lot of the shooters, a lot of the school shooters that we have seen in recent years. Lou, you guys took a look at this. What did you find? Yeah, so uh, for this one, we gave Oliver North a false. My colleague did a great job on this. We sort of read the stories before they come out publicly. And uh, I saw that quote and I was like, how are they going to get the information? You know, HIPAA rules are going to like prevent people from getting the like, you know, prescriptions that people. But you guys found a way. (laughs) We we did find a way. Um, And that is basically because a couple of scholars have done studies on this question and, and they've looked, I guess, presumably with the cooperation of the families or whatever. And they found that it's pretty rare, certainly not fair to say many of these school shooters had uh, taken Ritalin. A few had, but really not very common. In fact, one of the problems was that frequently a lot of the school shooters didn't have really any kind of medical care at all in terms of mental health care. And so these are people who were definitely not being medicated because they didn't even have access to them. That's interesting. Do you guys ever turn down truths that you just, you, you don't think you can do it? We have the option, if we see a sort of interesting claim and we either kind of decide at the outset or after our reporting that, hey, look, this is too fuzzy, Uh, we can't really fact check this, but we still think that it's an interesting topic, we can write an article that's like an explanatory article that, that doesn't have a truth rating attached to it. And so we can get the information out there but not have it take a side about whether it's true or false. All right. So our next one comes from Democratic leader Nancy Pelosi at a CNN town hall this month. We have 1.8, I think it was 1.8, but it could be $1.6 billion for this purpose for schools to make, uh, to give them an opportunity to secure them. This is a claim that PolitiFact says Trump has also made similar claims. Yeah, no, that, w- that was a sort of fascinating 
case of where the Trump White House, uh, both the president and the vice president had said something similar. They, they had said $2 billion instead of $1.6 billion, but the same thing as Nancy Pelosi said. And basically saying, you know, we've like stuck a lot of money in the budget for safe schools uh, to sort of clamp down on, um, on these school shootings. And certainly the implication was, if not the outright words saying that like, you know, this is about school safety measures, school security measures. So, so in this one, we gave Nancy Pelosi a mostly false. So there were two problems with what Pelosi said. One is that she had said at least 1.6 billion, but then when we uh, checked with her office, they were talking about a program that actually got 1.1 billion. So right off the top, they had overstated the number that they had uh, tried to put out there. But more importantly, that 1.1 billion is for a pot of money which is not just like dedicated for school safety and security. It's a specific program in the education department which has been um, funded for several years now. I believe it began under Obama. And it's basically to kind of get kids in a better school environment, but it doesn't have to do just with security and safety. Some of it does, and some of it deals with things like mental health professionals um, in schools. But a lot of it is about things like STEM education, science, technology, engineering, and math, and increasing digital education, you know, things like distance learning for rural districts. And so to say that there's $1.1 billion in this specifically for school security and safety was a real stretch. First of all, it hasn't been spent yet, but there's a lot of different programs that, that, that are going to be fighting for that money, and there's no guarantee at all that it's all going to be school security. So we gave her a mostly false. And certainly something that Nancy Pelosi should really know. <laughs> yes. It sounds yes. like it. Yes. Hey, Lou, well, we want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Sure. Thanks very much. Okay, now it's time for everyone's favorite segment, the lightning round. I'm going to go first, and I'm going to pick Stacey Abrams. Stacey Abrams, daughter of two Methodist ministers, believes all Georgia children deserve access to a quality public education. Those of you who are paying attention to last week's primaries, you know she won the gubernatorial nomination in Georgia. She's trying to become the first African-American woman to be a governor, but her political strategy is almost as interesting her entire theory of the case in the Georgia, this Georgia race is that she is going to drive up the Democratic vote and she is going to reach deep into the base and turn them out. It represents something of a argument within the Democratic Party, whether or not they need to reach across the aisle and try to win over more moderate or even Republican leading voters who might be disaffected with President Trump, or if they need to focus on their base and really give them something, give them a reason to turn out to vote. Her election in Georgia, still a Republican leading state, is going to be a very interesting test case of that. You know, to her point, uh, Republicans in Texas, uh, there was a, a memo leaked from them about what they would have done if Andrew White had won the gubernatorial nomination there, and it was essentially paint him as a uh, undercover Republican. So to the Democrats who are saying that they need to uh, excite their base, Republican strategy against a candidate in Texas was exactly that, to depress Democrats. Well, it's, this, is, this is how politics is evolving. And the, the classic strategy has always been, well, you got to run to the middle and win over those moderate voters. Truth is, in American politics today, there just aren't that many middle-of-the-road voters left. And there really is a, a case to be made that you, it is all about rallying your base and getting them to turn out, something President Trump was able to do to no small degree. Yeah. Andrea, you're up. 
All right, I want to spotlight a phenomenon that my colleague Anna Tinsley picked up on. Uh, she's a political reporter for the Fort Worth Star-Telegram. She had a story last week about elected officials blocking their constituents on social media. One of these guys that she interviewed said that he was doing it because he was receiving threats, but the constituents say, look, these guys aren't having town halls. It's our last way to get in contact with them. They don't want to hear from us in person, and now they don't want to hear, us, hear from us online either. Now, for the president of the United States, that was ruled unconstitutional. He's not allowed to block anyone. But these other lawmakers, that's not the case? It seems to be okay there. All right, Andrea, it has been a pleasure co-hosting the show with you yet again. Thanks, Alex. Thank you to producer Jordan Marie Smith. And thank you, our listeners. We want to hear from you. So please send your questions and your comments to btb at mcclatchy.com or connect with us on Facebook at facebook.com slash beyondthebubblepod. Tell us what you're seeing in your battleground states. We might even ask you to call into the show. And check us out on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, or whatever podcast app you use. We want to say thank you to everyone who's left us a review or a rating. Talk Talk to to you you next week. week.